0: Our call to confession this morning comes from the book of James, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. There we read, but he gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Your joy to gloom, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. As we look at this passage and we pick up kind of mid-conversation here in verse six, James is giving some uh, very great promises in these verses. Right there is a, a promise of abundant grace. Uh, there's a promise of victory over the devil, and there's a promise of God's ever-increasing presence among His people. And James roots these promises uh, in a demand. Uh, for genuine humility and repentance, right? Really, that's, that's the heart of verses 8 through 10, where James calls on the church to draw near, uh, or I'm sorry, to be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning your joy to gloom. Um, in fact, you could argue that these verses really serve as a, a foundation for the first 10 verses of James, where, where James is calling on the church uh, to, to live uh, in open, honest uh, relationship with the Lord. Right, to approach Him in true humility and true repentance, uh, to, to have this genuineness uh, about themselves in their relationship with the Lord. And, and I, I bring this up this morning uh, because as, as I was thinking about uh, preparing for uh, confession, I, I, I do this uh, week in and week out uh, because we do this week in and week out. Right? Every week as we gather together as, as God's people, part of our Lord's Day worship is coming together and corporately confessing our sins. And and I think that's a necessary thing. It's a wonderful thing. I think it's an absolutely important thing that we do. But but the the, the flip side or the the danger maybe in in doing something week in and week out is you start to just do that thing, right? You you start to just do it because it's in the bulletin. It's on the schedule and it needs to be done. Instead of doing it because it is an, an, an actual opportunity, for us to come before the Lord in genuine and humble repentance and lay before him the sins that we know that we have, we have done, the, the sins that we are, are unaware of uh, that, that are there and the sins that are ever present in ourselves and just lay them before him in, in humble confession and repentance. And, and so I, I don't want us, uh, and, I, and I don't think you want to as well, uh, to turn this into some kind of mechanism uh, some kind of rote memorization thing that we do, losing sight of the fact that God calls us to walk in true humility and true repentance, to come before him honestly and openly and genuinely engage with him in recognition that we are still still struggling against sin. You know, I love how, how Jeff makes the, the joke about the, the old man dying. And, and really, uh, as Arnie said in Sunday school this morning, we are daily putting to death the old man. We are daily in a struggle against indwelling sin, and, and the call is to, to kill it, to put it to death. And, and this is an opportunity that we have each week before us to do that in honesty and genuineness and humility, knowing that as we do it, all the promises that James speaks and all the promises that the Bible speaks are, are true in us because of Christ. So that as we draw near to him in humble confession, God draws nearer to us. As we come to him in humility, all he does is lavish more grace upon us and as we resist sin and satan in our lives we have the promise of victory over sin and satan in our lives and so as we do this as we come here in just a moment to kneel before the lord our maker and to lay before him corporately our failures and our sins and quietly our own personal failures and our sins let us do so in genuine humility knowing that we are forgiven in Christ. And knowing that there is great reason and purpose for us to do this. So if you are able this morning, would you please kneel with me as we confess our sins? Come, let us worship and bow down. Let's open your Bibles up. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 26, beginning in verse 34, all the way to chapter 28, verse 10, or verse 9. And uh, I I go back and forth in my mind uh, all week. I I kept thinking to myself, do do we read through the whole thing? Uh, Should I read the whole thing? Uh, should we just kind of dive in and out of it as we kind of go through the sermon? And I have decided we will read the whole thing because uh, we are in the midst of this wonderful uh, story that is unfolding, this Abrahamic narrative as it's moved or, or began actually back in chapter, uh, the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12 with the call of Abraham. And as we've watched the life of Abraham unfold, now moving into the generations of Isaac, uh, there, is, there is this uh, wonderful work that God is doing uh, in the midst of this kind of uh, turmoil and confusion. And, and it doesn't get much better this week. Uh, last week was a little bit of a, a brief reprieve uh, in chapter 26, where I said we got this kind of maybe out of, uh, out of context, out of time, look at the life of Isaac as he uh, sojourned in Gerar. And it was a little bit of a break from the, the confusion and the turmoil that we were introduced to in chapter 25. Chapter 25, we had this this hectic uh, pregnancy where Rebekah despaired of her life and that just kind of moved right into the birth of these twin boys as Esau comes out and Jacob grasping onto his heel. And then we see partisan divides in the parents and and really we just get this, this vision of a home uh, th- that that really isn't doing great. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not looking great, right? This isn't boding well for the future. Well, here in chapters 27, we come right back into it, and we find that uh, it, it isn't going well. Things aren't going well. And, and so we're going to walk through this narrative together this morning. I'm going to read it. We're going to walk through it. And at the end, I, I really, really, really just kind of want to make three uh, observations, applications, as we consider this, this passage this morning and and those three really uh, revolve around sin, grace, and family, right? I think as we look at this passage, we're, we're reminded, especially within the context of Genesis, the fact that we live in a sinful world and that we are people who are sinners. We are overcome with uh, sin. Uh, and, and sin, you can't speak of sin, at least contextually, biblically, without being, being ushered into uh, this, this awareness of grace, uh, that if it were not for God's grace, we would be left in our sin. And so uh, God's grace is on display here as well. And then lastly, uh, as we get this kind of window into uh, family dysfunction that we see here in in Genesis 27 and into 28, uh, it reminds us, I think, clearly that we who are in Christ are called to have homes uh, that glorify and honor the Lord. And so let's look at this passage together. We're going to start in 26, beginning in verse 34. And we're going to read to 28:9. so so buckle up when Esau was 40 years old he took Judith the daughter of Bere the Hittite to be his wife and Basemath the daughter of Elon the Hittite and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see he called Esau his older son and said to him my son and he answered here I am he said behold I am old I do not know the day of my death now then take your weapons your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me And prepare for me a delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring to bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare them delicious food. So that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, "Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing." his mother said to him let your curse be on me my son only obey my voice and go bring them to me so he went and took them and brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved then rebecca took the best garments of esau her older son which were with her in the house and put them on jacob her younger son and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son jacob so he went into his father and said my father And he said, Here am I. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him, and said, The voice is Jacob's voice but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father (coughs) Esau, his brother came in from his, hunt, from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate, I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, "'Bless me, even me also, O father!' But he said, "'Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing.' Esau said, "'Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing.' Then he said, "'Have you not reserved a blessing for me?' Isaac answered and said to Esau, "'Behold, I have made him lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for servants.' And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, father? Bless me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered him and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother." But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him, and Esau said to himself, "The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob." But the words of Esau, her older son, were told were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, "Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself." about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, your brother in Haran, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my, wife, my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, "'You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away.' And he went to Badan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badan Aram to take a wife from there, and that he blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Badan Aram. When Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael, And took as his wife, besides the wives that he had, Mahalahath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning thankful that you are God who speaks. Thankful, Lord, that you did not leave us in the death that we deserve, but you have called us to yourself in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom now as we sit under the the teaching of your word Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth and that we might walk in obedience to your word, that we might glorify and honor you as you call us to. Dear Lord, guard my mouth, I pray. May I say only that which is edifying for us, your people. In Christ's name, amen. <coughs> as, we come to, as we come to chapter 27, uh, we are brought, as I said earlier, right back into the thick of it. The family strife and the family discord that we're introduced introduced to in chapter 25 is brought front and center again here in this story. And we are ushered into this narrative, ushered into this chapter in the life of Isaac and Rebekah by verses 34 and 35 of chapter 26, where the first uh, two marriages of Esau recorded for us. We're told in those verses that when, I, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, uh, the daughter of Reed the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now, as we, uh, as we read this, uh, this is troubling for us really in, in two ways. Uh, one is clearly laid out in the text, right? It says that it, it made life, these marriages made. Life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now, when we read that, uh, that, that means much more than just that the, the, these were like upsetting unions, right? It means more than that, that you know, like uh, Isaac and Rebekah kind of hoped for more for Esau. Uh, literally, what we, a way we could translate this is that Isaac and Rebekah uh, were, were bitter in their spirit. Right? The, this, this union that, that Esau had sought out for himself, these two wives that Esau had taken to himself, um, only served to to amplify uh, the tension that was already present in the home. Uh, they literally these these two marriages just, just made things exponentially worse. Such that Isaac and Rebecca are are, are embittered in their, their very spirit. Right. This is this is this is going through the, to the to the very core of them and upsetting them uh, at the, at their very core. Uh, but it's not only troubling because these relationships made the home uh, a horrible place to be, it seems. Uh, these, these relationships, or, or verse 34 and 35, are, are, are troubling um, in that it appears that Isaac took absolutely no initiative uh, in the life of his son Esau or in the life of his son Jacob. Um, when, we, when we read 34 and 35, I, I think Moses wants us to read it in light of chapter 24, and what Abraham did for Isaac. I, I think that's set up for us in several ways. In fact, how old was Isaac when he got married? Anybody remember? He was 40 when he got married. We're told that Esau was 40 when he got married as well. And so the, the, Moses wants us to see the, the marriages of Esau here in light of the marriage of Isaac and what Abraham did for Isaac. So if we go back to chapter 24, um, we find that Abraham goes to great lengths to ensure that his son Isaac does not take for himself a wife from the peoples of the land in which he is sojourning. Right? We go back there in, verse 20, in chapter 24, and, and Abraham finds his oldest and most reliable servant within his household, and he says to him, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. And so we, we see Abraham in chapter 24 as, as he sees himself preparing really to die, uh, grabbing the most trusted man he can in his home and saying to him, go find a wife for my son. Swear to me. Make an oath with me that you will go and you will find a wife for my son and you will not return until you find a wife for my son, for my own people, so that he does not take a wife for himself from among the peoples. When we get to chapter 26, 34 and 35. It appears that Isaac has done nothing of the sort, right? He he has not followed suit like his father and labored to ensure that his son, his firstborn, doesn't take a, a wife from among the people. Now the law, obviously, which comes later, right, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter seven. Uh, when Moses is speaking to the people, preparing for them to enter the promised land, he says to them that when you go and you go and inhabit the promised land, you are not to intermarry with the people of the land. And so what we see in chapter 24 is that Abraham in his actions was clearly setting a precedent for his offspring to follow. And unfortunately, what we find out is that Isaac is apparently just unwilling to do what his father did. He's unwilling to follow in the steps of his father and he makes absolutely no provision whatsoever for his son. And, and as we go through this story, this, this portion of the narrative, what we find actually is that, is that Isaac kind of seems absent, altogether absent. That, that this, this lack of provision here for his son in, the, in, in his marriage kind of characterizes his interaction with his family as we move through this story. In fact, what we find is that Isaac seems far more interested in filling his belly than he does in leading his home, And In fact, you could argue that just like his son, it's Isaac's appetites, just like his son Esau, it's Isaac's appetites that increase and amplify the family tension. In fact, if we look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 27, that's what we find. It says, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, my son, And he answered, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go to the field and hunt for me, game. And prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat and that my soul may bless you before I die. It would appear that Esau kind of comes by his issues rather naturally, right? If you remember, Esau comes in from the hunt earlier in chapter 25, and he's starving, starving to the point that he's about to die, and he sees the food that his brother's prepared, and he says, give me some of that food. Literally, that stew, that red stew. And that, that's when Jacob, the usurper, takes opportunity to steal his birthright from his brother. And you could say he doesn't really steal it. He gets it for a rather cheap price, the, a bowl of lentil soup and some bread. And here, just as his son despised his birthright for a bowl of soup and bread, it would seem that Isaac is willing to, tra- to trade divine counsel for a delicious meal. And it's in this scene right here, as Isaac is interacting with his son Esau, that really the main character of chapter 27 starts to emerge, and that's Rebecca. Because we read in verse five that Rebekah is standing at the door and she is listening to what Esau is saying to her, to his, or I'm sorry, what Isaac is saying to his son Esau. and she begins to put a plan in motion. Now we know what that plan is, right? She gets her son Jacob and she orchestrates this event where uh, Jacob goes in and tricks his blind father into thinking that he is Esau and he takes Esau's blessing. Now as we think about Rebekah and her motivations here in chapter 27, it's, it's a little difficult for us to fully kind of parse out her motivations, right? Certainly she is motivated, By the prophetic oracle that was spoken over this pregnancy in chapter 25, where God said there's two nations in your womb, there's two peoples, and the older shall serve the younger. But even within that same chapter, chapter 25, uh, verse 28 kind of stands as a summary statement over the family as a whole. In chapter 25, verse 28, we read, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so we're told in chapter 25 that, that there's some partisan divide between mom and dad as they're lining up behind their favorite sons. Again, Isaac is choosing Esau because he's driven by his belly and he really likes the food that comes from him. And Rebekah is with Jacob. So no doubt her love for Jacob, her desire for Jacob is playing a part in her actions here. And, and that partisan divide is, that we saw in chapter 25 is, is again really emphasized here in chapter 27. I don't know if you noticed it as we were reading through the, the first part there, uh, Isaac continually refers to Esau as my son, right? If you look at verse two or verse one, he says, my son, and he answered, here I am. Uh, and even in chapter, or verse five, Rebekah refers to Esau as his son, right? Look at verse five, it says, now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Conversely, Jacob, Rebe- Rebecca refers to Jacob as my son. And so even in the way that the parents are interacting and speaking to them, there's this reminder, right, that there's this kind of divide between the parents over their own children. Uh, This is also uh, exemplified, this is also amplified uh, by the fact that Esau only calls, or sorry, Isaac only calls Esau to his bedside, right? So this, this story in chapter 27, we're introduced to Isaac not knowing the day of his death, and he calls only Esau to himself. Uh, That's unusual for a a father, a patriarch over a family, if he knows his life is coming to an end, to only call one of his sons to pass on blessing and his last words. Uh, If we fast forward to the end of Genesis, uh, we find Jacob gathering with all of his sons as he speaks his final words and his blessings over all of his sons. So Esau, again, I'm gonna get this straight, Isaac, there's just too many names. Isaac is effectively cutting off Jacob from the get-go. He's effectively cutting off Jacob from the get-go, and he's only calling Esau to himself. So here in the, in the very beginning, as we're ushered into this event, it, it's, it's really, it's all messed up. It's all wrong. And Rebecca notices this, right? Rebecca notices this. And so while, uh, while, while we can't really understand her motivations, we do know that her goal, her goal is commendable. Right? Rebecca is setting out to ensure that the elected son is blessed. But while her goal is commendable, the means or the actions that she takes to achieve that are less so. And, it, and it's interesting that Moses, as he's relating this story to us, doesn't necessarily comment upon her actions here. But in verses seven through 17, we see Rebecca make her plan to deceive her blind husband and ensure that Jacob receives the patriarchal blessing. As we read through, we see that Jacob initially is hesitant to do that. He's concerned that his father is going to find out, and instead of receiving a blessing from his father, <coughs> excuse me, he's going to invite a curse upon himself. But his mother convinces him. She looks at him and he says, Let your curse be upon me only. Obey my voice, my son. And in the end, Jacob decides to obey the voice of his mother so that in 18 through 29, this plan is put into action. Jacob goes into his father with food that he loves, fully disguised as his brother with goat's hair on his hands and on his neck and clothed in his brother's garments. Jacob's part in this deception is not only passive in that he comes in with the food and clothed as his brother, but it is also very active as he deceives his father when he says, who are you, my son? And he says, it is I, Esau, your oldest son. So being fully convinced that Jacob is indeed Esau, Isaac proceeds to speak a blessing over Jacob. And we read that in verses 27 through 29. Look there again with me. It says, see the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, the the importance of a patriarchal blessing historically is well understood. This is not an uncommon ritual to take place in the ancient Near East, but we understand within the context of Genesis that the patriarchal blessing is not just a blessing from a father to a son, but it carries with it massive theological importance. And so as Jacob is here taking this blessing from his father, deceitfully taking this blessing from his father, we find that God's sovereign purpose and plan from Genesis 25 are being fulfilled as Isaac declares over his son Jacob, be Lord over your brothers and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Now, as as we read this story, I I really believe, and and I use the word story uh, not to mean untrue story. I was talking to my, my, my kids at home about this, and I kept using the word story, and they're like, but yeah, it's true, right, Dad? And I was like, yes. I don't mean untrue story. Like, this is a story, and it's a narrative, and it's written for us to interact with, right? It's written for us to kind of to feel the weight of it. And at this point, we 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 know Genesis 25, we know the prophetic oracle, we see the mistake that Isaac's about to make, and we're thinking, how can this mistake be righted? And then Rebecca concocts this plan, and we're like, ooh, this is a little dicey, maybe this isn't the best way it should happen, and, and we're kind of at odds within this story. But Moses is also doing something wonderful in that he's, he's setting up what's to come, right? Now, we, we know the rest of the story, especially if you've, you've read Genesis, and, and we know that deception plays a, a major role in the life of Jacob. Right, so Jacob deceives his father here, uh, and we know that in, in just a few short chapters, what's gonna happen to Jacob? Well, he's gonna be the one who gets deceived, right? He goes into the marriage bed expecting one woman, wakes up the next morning, and it's somebody else, right? And we also know that Jacob himself will also be deceived. I find it really interesting that, let me back up, I find it really interesting that Jacob uses a garment as a means of deception, Right? He's clothed in Esau's garment so that he smells like Esau. And forward up forward along in the story, Jacob himself is going to be deceived with a garment. His sons will come to him with a coat and say, Can you identify this coat? And Jacob says, It's the coat of my son. He's dead. He's been torn apart by animals. And his sons just kind of passively stand there and go yeah yeah that's what happened dad that's exactly what happened you got it right and so moses is even preparing us for for parts of the story that are about to come as we kind of watch this thing unfold before our eyes and so here we're at this place where jacob's come in he's deceived his father his ailing blind father has gone from the deception and he's pronounced blessing upon his younger son and then it only gets more exciting as we turn the page and move into the next part of the story because if we look at verse 30, it says, As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his father, Esau came in from the hunt. So we, we get this scene set for us that that you can almost like, like, like Jacob sitting there kind of like tapping his watch he's like my brother's not going to take forever like we got to get this done dad let's get the blessing done eat your meal drink your wine let's go let's go let's go he's kind of checking the back door of the tent like has Esau come in yet so his dad's done eating he's got the blessing he gathers the dishes he's like all right I'm out and as soon as he walks out it's like you can imagine Esau just walks right in and Esau's like dad I'm here I've hunted game I've brought it for you now arise father and bless me your son and you can see the wheels start to turn in Isaac's mind going, oh, wait a second, I think, we, I think we just did this. And he goes, and he goes who are you? And he goes, it's, it's, it's me, Esau, your son. Now, now that alone just starts to grip us, but, I, but the language and the way that Moses uses language to just ramp up the tension and the emotion of, of this scene is brilliant because, because what happens is as soon as Isaac starts to realize something's happened, right? Something's happened. Look at verse 33. It says, Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that honey came and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I've blessed him. And yes, he is blessed. Literally, it says, He trembled with a very great trembling. In the the Hebrew, he trembled with a very great... So he starts to shake violently as he starts to realize that the plan that he had in his mind come to me, Esau, my son, hunt for me, let me bless you, has not gone as he thought it would go. And instead of blessing the son that he intended to bless, and instead of cutting off the son that he intended to cut off, he blessed the son that he intended to cut off, and he cut off the son that he intended to bless. And so he starts to shake and tremble as the deception starts to dawn on him. And this, trembling with a very great trembling, is only outdone by Esau's response. Says Esau, look at verse 34, as soon, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. Now, I'm not going to try to do that for you right now. I think it would, be, it would be offensive. It would be off-putting for me to just start to scream into the microphone. But you get the scene, right? I mean, think about it again. Jacob Jacob is probably at this point, let's imagine he's 20 feet, 30 feet from the tent, right? He's he's kind of putting his dishes away. He's he's probably within earshot of what's taking place back with his father. And, and, And what he hears come out of that tent is this bitter scream from his brother who realizes, who realizes that his brother now has twice, twice deceived him twice he's deceived him. And so we get this extremely, extremely emotional interaction. And and as you read it, you, I I mean, you kind of start to feel for Esau, right? I I mean, you're kind of like, man, it it kind of stinks to be you, right? Look at what he says. He cries out with this exceedingly bitter cry. He says, bless me, even me, oh, my father. I mean, I mean you, could, you could hear the pain and sorrow in his voice and in his father's response is, your brother came deceitfully and he's, he's taken away your blessing. The, the, the interesting thing here is that Isaac realizes the irrevocable nature of this blessing. Even though it wasn't what he intended, even though it wasn't what he wanted to do, he understands the irrevocable nature of this. He, he is blessed. He is the one who is blessed. What do you want me to do, Esau? There is nothing I can do. He's taken it. It's his, and there's nothing left for you. But Esau continues to press. Have you but one blessing, my father? Is there but one blessing? Is that all you've got? Bless me, father. Please bless me. But there is no blessing left for Esau. So in the end, all that Isaac can speak over his son is in verses 39 through 40. And and we read it, and we hear it, right, in in contrast to the blessing spoken over Jacob. Jacob. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And so there is no blessing left for Esau. His brother Jacob has come, not only taken his birthright, but also taken his blessing. And in a way, you can say that Esau should have seen this coming. Right? He who sold his birthright for a pot of stew and bread did not have the foresight to look in down the future and say, hey, what are the consequences of my decision here? I, I imagine that there's some amount of time that's transpired between the deception of the birthright and the deception of the blessing. And what's interesting about that is, is Esau never would have considered this being the end of his initial decision. He'd probably given 1,000 tries. He never would have said, you know where this is going to end? With my brother stealing not only my birthright, but my blessing as well. But such is the nature of sinful decisions. Right? In the moment, we very rarely think about what the full consequences of those decisions is going to be. The original passage that I wanted read for our New Testament reading this morning was from Galatians chapter 6, where Paul uh, talks about not growing weary in well-doing. He says, for whatever you sow, that you shall also reap. Right? If you sow to the flesh, you shall from the flesh reap destruction. If you sow to the spirit, you, know, you shall from the spirit reap eternal life. And I remember being a young man uh, in uh, First Baptist Church at Hendersonville, North Carolina. Truly God's country. Not South Carolina, North Carolina. Absolutely gorgeous. And I remember sitting in a service, and this is, this is shortly after uh, the Lord had gotten a hold of my life. I, I'd wandered in darkness in the valley of the shadow of death, and the Lord retrieved me, brought me back to himself. And I remember sitting and listening to the pastor, Steve Scoggins, preaching. He talked about the law of the harvest. He talked about the law of the harvest. And he said, the law of the harvest is uh, you reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, and you reap later than you sow. And he was talking about if you sow to sin, you're going to reap more than you put in, and you're going to reap it later than you think you will. And I thought about that with Esau. Esau, who's driven by his passions and his his desires and his appetites. Remember 25, he says, I'm going to die. He's not going to die. He's at home already. But he's so driven by his desire to, to satisfy his appetites that he's willing to trade his birthright for soup. And he doesn't think about the consequences of that. And now, in this scene, as he sits before his father, I imagine, on his knees, crying out, do you have but one blessing? He is reaping the rewards of his sinful decisions. And so Esau responds with hatred. If you look at verse 41, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Esau's response is to hate his brother and to comfort himself, to comfort his hatred and his anger and his anguish with the hope and the prospect of murdering his own brother. Rebecca hears of this as well. And again, she springs into action. She makes a plan. She decides to send Jacob away to her brother and that he can stay there, she says, just stay there until such a time as your brother's anger calms down as he starts to forget what you've done. It seems he has a short memory, evidently. And then I will send for you and I will call you back. And I think this might be the one place where Moses makes a little bit of a commentary on the actions of Rebecca. Because Rebecca will never see her favorite son again. She will not call him back from Padan Aram. This will be the last words that she ever speaks to her favorite son as she sends him away. Because Jacob will not return until much later when he himself is a married man and has his own children. In fact, Rebecca at that point is assumed to already be dead. So to put her plan into place, what does she do? She goes to her husband and she says, I hate my life. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. And I hate it because of those two Hittite women that Esau married. And if, if Jacob marries one of them, I swear I'll kill myself. That's a modern translation. I I do apologize. That's what she says. It's it's harsh. That was shocking, wasn't it? It's meant to be shocking. That's what she's saying to him. She's like, "If, if Jacob follows suit, what good is my life to me? I'm done. So Isaac now does what he should have done from the beginning. Right? In chapter 28, he does what he should have done from the beginning. But it takes this threat from his wife to push him into action. So then he calls Jacob to himself. He blesses Jacob and he says, you're going to go to Padanaram, and You're going to find a wife for yourself from there. Don't take a wife from here. Go and find for yourself a wife. And then in hopes, in hopes, he speaks over him the blessings of Abraham. Look at 28 verse 3. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Badan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. And so this story then in chapter 28, 9, and 10, or I'm sorry, 6 through 9, wraps up where it began with Esau getting married. And it, it's interesting how this portion of the narrative, is, is, it's bookended by these, these marriages of Esau. Now, if the first marriage was done in ignorance with the father's lack of initiative, the father's lack of foresight, if that first marriage was done in ignorance in chapter 26, this one in chapter 28 is done completely in spite. He is, he is seeking out a woman specifically for the purpose of aggravating his father. Now, it's interesting, okay? Notice where we've moved in this story. It starts with... Isaac going Esau my son and and Esau saying here I am my father your son Esau and let me bless you before you die yes father I'll go get the game for you and where does it end it ends with Esau despising his father so much that he's seeking out a woman specifically to make his father's life miserable and it's here I think that we really see the heart of Esau Like I said earlier, we're tempted to start to feel for him, right? Almost to start to plead his case. Come on, give the guy something. Throw him a bone. Is it his fault that he was deceived? Give him something, Isaac, please. But here we really see the true nature of his heart. His his repentance, his tears before his father were not tears of sorrow. Uh, they, They weren't tears poured out because he's missing out on the Abrahamic blessing. They were probably tears poured out because he's missing out on a bunch of money. Right, he looked at Dad's bank account, and he realizes now, hey, ninety percent of that's going to my brother, and I'm just gonna get, I'm gonna get shortchanged. Come on, Dad, you gotta give me something. So he's not motivated by this true desire to honor the Lord, to glorify the Lord, to receive uh, upon himself the the Abrahamic covenant and blessings and promises. He's motivated by lesser things. And we see that in his response. There's no true repentance here. There's no true humility here. There's no change of heart here. There's a man who is hell-bent on getting what he wants when he wants it. And when he doesn't get it, what does he do? Well, he responds and he reacts like a child. I'm going to kill my brother. I'm going to marry this woman just so I can make dad and mom's life miserable. And as we read this story, like as we read this, I, like honestly, what, what can we do? <laughs> like we, we just sit here and we just shake our heads. We just shake our heads and go, what kind of, what kind of family is this? What kind of home is this? What kind of situation is this? And, 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 and like I said, uh, there, there's the, the, the craziness of this situation, the messiness of this situation uh, does a couple things. One, it reminds us of the nature of, of sin and the reality of sin and the reality that we are in a fallen world. Again, we are in the book of Genesis and we're reading this story within the context of Genesis. And as we read about a marriage that has turmoil and friction and has brother going against brother, what, what does that remind us of? What does that call to mind? It calls to mind Genesis 3 and 4. Like if we go back to Genesis 3 and 4, the immediate fallout of the fall is what? What? Adam pointing at his wife and going, you know what, God, if you didn't put her here, none of this would have happened. If you hadn't dropped this, it was all great and gravy when I was running the garden by myself. And then when you put here her here, it all went crazy. And Eve's like, Well, it wasn't me. It wasn't me, God. It was the the serpent. Well, who put the serpent there? God, if you hadn't put a serpent in the garden, who puts a snake in a garden? It's like the worst idea ever. And so immediately, the fallout of the fall is we see this relational relational, ah, relational turmoil, this, this friction in the most intimate of relationships, a marriage relationship. Well, what is Isaac, the, the window that we've gotten into Isaac and Rebecca's marriage? What does it look like? It, it looks like there's a lot of friction there. And just as Adam abdicated his, his role in the garden, what do we find Isaac doing? Nothing. <laughs> like it looked really good at the start of chapter 25, he prayed for 20 years for his wife to give birth. Prayed for 20 years, we'll, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. 20 years he's praying for his wife and then she gives birth. And it seems like, he's like, maybe he was like, well, you know what, I did my job. <laughs> I put in 20 years of praying, now I'm done. And it seems that he does nothing in the home. He takes no initiative for his children. He's only forced into action as his wife, who's all too ready to usurp his authority, moves and presses and connives and does these kind of things. And so we're reminded of, of the reality of sin. And then we have chapter four. What happens in chapter four of Genesis? What's the, the first murder ever recorded? Is, is a brother killing a brother? What do we find Esau comforting himself with here? Murdering his brother. Like, I, I don't know if any of you have brothers in here, your siblings. I'm the youngest, so I was, I'm perfect. That's, that's the, the joy of being the youngest, is that you are by default the perfect sibling, the perfect child. Justin's over there nodding his head. He knows. He knows. And as much as my brother and I got in fights, as much as my, as my brother and I, we, we went at each other, I never once thought to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill that guy. He stole my GI Joe. I can't believe... He took my G.I. Joe. The only way this is rectified is if I murder him. Never! That's ridiculous! And yet here's Esau. That's the thought that comes. So what is Moses doing? He's, he's not letting us escape the greater narrative here of our sinfulness and our brokenness. That, 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 that we, are, we are fallen. That we are, as the scriptures say, slaves to sin. Bound to it. And we see sin active in every aspect of this family. But as we think about sin and as we look at the the sinfulness of this home, we we can't help but think about grace. Because the question is, God, how could you use this family? You're telling me, like, this is the best family you could come up with to accomplish your purposes and your plans? Because who comes from this lineage? Who comes out of this mess? Christ. Christ and it's just going to get messier from here on out. And yet this is how God has determined to bring his savior into the world is through this lineage. And the only way we can explain this, the only answer that makes any sense is God's abundant grace. Every action of God, every 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 part of his interaction with humanity is built upon his grace. Him graciously interacting. Him graciously calling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Him graciously giving him the covenantal promises. Him graciously passing those on to Isaac and as we'll see later graciously passing those on to Jacob and to the nation and graciously using the nation as the Bible says he lavishes, lavishes his grace upon his people. And so yes we are sinful but greater than our sin is God's Grace. And we love to talk about it, but honestly, I think oftentimes we shortchange it. Like, we don't understand how great it really is until we get moments like this, where we get to see <laughs> how messed up this family is, right? And, and, and the, the extent to which they're messed up amplifies the greatness of the extent of God's grace, that he would use these people, that he would work through this lineage, ultimately to bring who? Christ. And what does John say about Jesus Christ in John chapter 1? He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Three verses, that's three verses in John's prologue. Three verses, grace, one, two, three, four times John mentions grace in connection with Christ. Four times in three verses, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace coming through Christ Jesus. And so we look at the sin. We see the depth of our depravity. We see our wickedness, but we're not meant to stay there and wallow in our wickedness. We're meant to see our wickedness and then rejoice in the greatness of God's grace and then declare, yes, I'm a sinner. (laughs) Yes, there's no reason for God to use me. Yes, I'm just as wicked and broken as these people, but greater is God's grace. And so as we see sin in the scriptures, we are immediately reminded or we should be immediately reminded of the greatness of God's grace, which as Paul says again in Ephesians 1, he lavishes upon us. I, 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 I think about that every time we do a baptism, every time we do an infant baptism. So, so as somebody who grew up as a, as a credo Baptist, right, I'm still a little new to the party, so I still get geeked out at, at baptism, paid a baptism. You old people who have been doing it forever, you probably, it's lost all joy for you. I assume Jeff just, motion, just goes through the motions, right? I'm, I'm teasing. I'm, I'm teasing. He's fantastic. But every time we do a baptism, I, I rejoice because I'm sitting there going, "This is this is a picture of this is a reminder of God's grace being lavished upon generations. This is a picture of, of of our God in heaven, who who is far greater and more glorious and more wonderful and more loving and more merciful and more gracious than we could ever imagine." Give us an eternity, and we will not plumb the depths of His grace, His mercy, His kindness, His love and his compassion. And so we get tastes of it when we watch little children being baptized as God is proclaiming over them His gracious promises. And he's declaring to them, "To us, to His church, I'm a God of grace who lavishes my grace upon my people." And we declare and we rejoice that we are people saved by grace and by grace alone. It is not through our works, but it is through the grace of God. So we see sin in stark relief here. We see grace in amazing abundance here. And lastly, as those who are standing firmly in the grace of God, on this side of Christ in the new covenant, we're able to look back at this situation, at this family, and and clearly see how it fails to honor the Lord. I was talking to Annie about this uh, uh, during the week, and, you know, she reminded me, you know, uh, keep in mind that, you know, Isaac's just like one generation out of paganism, right? I mean, Abraham's called out of Ur the Chaldeans. He's worshiping fallen gods or false gods, and he's called out of paganism. He's called the Lord, and so you might want to be giving them a little learning curve as you look at their home and go, this place is a train wreck, right? Isaac's not leading. Rebecca's conniving. Kids hate each other. Like, this is not a model home. This is not a family that you, you put on a postcard and say, Merry Christmas. Like, this is one where they're all like got knives and trying to stab each other in the photo, right? But we can look back on this now in Christ and we can see how this is not a situation that brings glory and honor to the Lord. And in that we're reminded of the way in which it's important for us as followers of Christ to have homes that honor Christ, uh, we, we have a tendency, and I'm, maybe I'm speaking for myself, uh, but we have a tendency uh, to create distinctions between public and private, right? And, and we, we're all very good at being, uh, well, to certain degrees, public Christians, right? We're all good at being public Christians, coming to church, putting our face on, doing our thing, making sure everybody knows that we're good Christians, we're good people, we're good believers. But then sometimes we go home, and behind closed doors in private, it's a train wreck. And 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 there's this temptation to think so long as outwardly things look good, it doesn't really matter inwardly how things are going. Because we we've come to this idea that that our witness, our testimony for Christ is just this outward thing. And yet the reality is, is that like our our testimony for the Lord is it's it's all of us, right? It's it's all of who we are. That our our, our homes, our, our very homes, are meant to be places that proclaim the gospel. Right? Our homes are meant to be places that glorify and honor the Lord, whether people are watching or not. Whether people are there or, or not, our homes are meant to be a testimony to the power of the gospel to transform and change sinful people into saints. We, we heard it read from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, and then 24 through chapter 6, 4, where Paul looks at Christ and he looks at the home and he says, there, there's a way that the home should be structured. There's a way that the home should look in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Husbands should love their wives Says Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Washing her in the water and the word that she might be pure and spotless. And wives are supposed to respect and submit to their husbands and everything as as a church submits to Christ. And children are to honor their father and mother and to walk in obedience to their parents, knowing that there's great reward in doing so. And as we do this, right, we have this home that that honors Christ. And in Genesis 27, we don't see that home. We don't see that home. And in not seeing that home, we are encouraged to have that home. To be men who love our wives well, as Christ loves the church well. To be wives who honor our husbands well, as the church honors Christ well. To be children who honor their parents and obey their parents. And as we do this, as we do this, our homes become a living proclamation of the power of the gospel. And so I guess the question is, if Genesis 27 was not Isaac and Rebecca's home, but it was your home, what would Genesis 27 look like? If Genesis 27 wasn't Isaac and Rebecca and their marriage and their children, but it was your marriage and your children, what would Genesis 27 look like? My prayer for myself and for you, who are husbands and wives and mothers and fathers, you who long to be husbands and wives and mothers and fathers that our homes would not look like this, but they would be homes that glorify and honor the Lord. Now, is it perfection? No, it's not perfection, but it's a direction, a grace-infused, a grace-empowered direction where we are constantly moving towards greater honor, greater glory of Christ Jesus in our lives and in our homes. And so as we look at this situation, at which we can really only shake our head at. We're reminded of our sinfulness, we're encouraged by the depth of God's grace, and we are encouraged to have homes that glorify and honor the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. Father, we thank you for your abundant grace which you lavish upon us. Father, I pray that you would cause us to walk in that grace to glorify and honor you in our lives, in our homes, in our marriages, in our parenting, in all that you've called us to do so that in all that we do, we would do all for your glory and for your greatness. Father, we praise you and thank you for your love for us. In Christ's name, amen. Now, would you please stand with me as the Lord sends us out with his blessing upon us to do the work that he has called us to do. I speak these words of Christ over you. The Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let us go this week rejoicing in the great grace of the God who has called us and loves us. Now would you raise your hand in song with me as we go into a new week with the Lord's blessing.